You're listening to the Loose Heads Podcast. Join the movement. Let's get people talking about mental health. And together we will tackle Tackle the the stigma. stigma. This is the Loose Heads Podcast. Hello there, welcome along to the Loose Heads Podcast in association with Talking Rugby Union with me, Chris Hill. Uh, First of all, thank you for all the feedback on our last episode with Mike Brown. Uh, Of course, the week we actually released that episode, Mike had announced he would be leaving Harlequins. But some of the feedback that I've read on LinkedIn and other social media platforms of Loose Heads has been really great to see. So thank you to everyone who listened. We appreciate the feedback, the comments and the reviews as always. So uh, thank you for that. Again, and on the back of that, Rob, Mark and Dave, who join me on today's podcast, as always, have been busy over the last couple of weeks. They organised uh, their Are You OK virtual event, which was supremely hosted by the excellent Craig Doyle at the start of the month. And they had some fabulous guests who all have connections to loose heads in one way or another. So uh, many thanks to everyone who sent questions in and got involved with that at the start of the month. And, and Dave, just to bring you in to begin with, it seemed like a, a fantastic evening. I mean, I watched it on Facebook Live and it was uh, great to see everyone getting involved. Yeah, it, it was absolutely incredible. So sort of everyone involved kind of far exceeded all our expectations and hopes. Somehow, just about behind the scenes, I managed to hold the whole thing together with uh, my uh, lack of knowledge of Zoom webinars. But I, I don't think anyone noticed too much. But yeah, just a, a huge thank you to everyone involved, everyone who tuned in. And um, we will have a recording out of the event soon because the content is just invaluable. Yeah, I think that was the thing as well, Rob, just to bring you in before we introduce our next guest, that that content just seemed to resonate with a lot of people. When I was watching it on Facebook, the comments were really positive. Everyone was like bouncing off each other. And I guess that was one of your aims from the evening. Absolutely. You've got people like Denny Solomona telling his story. Um, and when, when someone like that says what he said um, about his sort of mental struggles and, and what he went through, people are listen. He's a macho character that, you know, He's a role model for a lot of people. So when he says it, people people take notice and listen. So it is, it's really important. Yeah, definitely. And as Dave said, there will be a recording of the Are You OK virtual event, which Lou says, well, I'm sure push out on their social media channels and across their website as well. And that was something a little bit different and new, which the Lou Seds guys have done. And I guess today's podcast probably falls under that bracket as well, because we're delighted to say joining us on the latest Loose Heads podcast, is sports psychologist, international speaker, and best-selling author, it's Professor Damien Hughes. So Damien, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to us, and welcome to the Loose Heads podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a real treat to come along and, uh, and meet with you all, and I think I think the charity you do and the podcast that, that's associated with it is phenomenal. I really, really admire your courage to bring these topics to the forefront, and so thank you for having me on. Uh, it's, it's brilliant to, to have you on, Damien. You know, uh, everyone I think on this uh, podcast is massive, massive fans of your work. But for those guys who are listening who might not know your background, Damien, do you mind just giving us a brief insight into, into what you do? I mean, I listed off a, a few things that you do, but that's probably just scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, it's probably easier to explain my background through like three lenses, if you like. So one is I'm a visiting professor of uh, organisational psychology and change at Manchester Met University. Uh, the second thing I do is I work as a consultant across quite a wide range of organizations. So I do quite a lot in the corporate world, a bit in education, and most of my work is in the world of elite sport um, and around that topic. And then the third job is that um, uh, I write books and that I, I, I'm lucky enough to co-host a podcast like yourself um, called the High Performance Podcast. So. Um, 
I've got quite a varied range of different roles and that's by design rather than by accident. Um, I realised when I was a kid that um, I remember reflecting once thinking, I wonder what my teachers would have said about me when I left school. I came to the conclusion that it probably said I was a nice enough lad, but I was a bit of a pain in the arse. And I think uh, I came to the realisation it was often because I just needed stimulation. I needed to have uh, a variety of different things, which is why I've sort of tried to set up my life to keep me to have a number of different plates spinning. Yeah, and, and, and Mark, just to kind of bring you in on what Damien just said there, I mean, usually on the podcast, we, you know, Rob pulls the strings and gets the guests and, and the big names on, but this time it, it was all your own doing, I think it's fair to say, Mark. So just tell us a bit about how you know Damien, and, and it's clear just listening to Damien there that he's kind of got so many different things going on, it just helps with the work that he does. Yeah, I've had to dig deep to, to, match, uh, to match Rob, and, and, and we've come up trumps. Um, but but Damien and I, it's it's a very it's a tale of of uh, not dissimilar to a rugby club, if I'm honest. Da- Damien and I uh, share uh, a long friendship with with a chap called David Roberts. Uh, David Roberts, tragically and very, all too soon, died during lockdown last year, which was which was unforeseen. He died suddenly. Um, David was one of these guys that that comes in. People come into your life for a reason. It's said. Um, they either come in for a season to teach you something for a, a period of time or they come in as a lifetime friend or they come in to teach you one lesson but but David picked me up when I'd, I'd stumbled probably 10 years ago uh, and I, w- I just knew him casually we were a member of a business peer-to-peer group uh, David was the life and soul of that group he, he really was um, and, and he recognised something in me he recognised I wasn't very happy at, at what I was doing he recognised I needed to, to probably go and test myself. He had a little phrase. He said, I'm fed, of you. I'm fed up of you playing in the little league. And he encouraged me to go and do the things that I'm now doing, which is, a, uh, I guess, it's a bit of a portfolio thing, a bit like um, not accidental and it's by design, a bit like, like Damien said. And, and out of a clear blue sky, probably, I'm going to guess now five years ago, he sent me a message saying, this is a book you've got to read. And it was this book, which is The Barcelona Way. So, of course, I put myself on the waiting list. I got it, consumed it within about an hour and a half. Um, and then said, how, how do you know Damien? He said, oh, he's my mate. And, and it was as casual as that. And, and consequently, Damien and I have, have shared. I mean, he's the, he's the cultural guru. And, and, and actually, to be fair, when I've had a few cultural challenges in businesses I've been running in the past, I've actually, I've actually got on a phone to Damien and he's just soothed my angst in some respects. But, but, but Dame, David was your mate as much as he was mine, probably a bigger mate for you, Damien. Yeah, it's like, I feel choked up even as you, as you reference it in there, Mark. He was uh, like, I always think like your example that you said he picked you up 10 years ago, um, I, that when he passed away, I wrote a letter to his daughter, Poppy. She's a 18 year old. And uh, I wrote her a letter with sort of like my reflections on the dad. And the last time I heard of him was, I had a bit of a tough time last year. Um, before the pandemic, uh, my parents are, uh, are elderly and my dad's quite poorly and I had a number of issues. I had a legal issue that was looming over me and it was just one of those occasions where you felt like life is raining quite hard on you. And uh, the first person that dropped me a line was David to arrange to uh, to catch up. He said, I'm thinking of you, you know, um, and we'll meet and we'd plan to meet. Lockdown happened and then... Like I say, unfortunately, he passed away last year. 
but I mentioned that to his daughter because I said the you know the last meeting I had with him was entirely emblematic of my whole dealings with him. He was just a man that lit up a room, a man that made that made life better. You know, I remember hearing Alex Ferguson many years ago give a great definition that he said a friend is somebody who walks in the room when everyone else walks out. And if there was an epitaph to describe David Roberts, that's uh, he, he, you know, he's a man that would always walk into the room when everyone else was walking out. I just think the world is a poorer place for his loss. Well said. Yeah, well said. Yeah, no, he's sorely missed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's lovely to be able to remember him, especially because especially of the connection in terms of how that he came in for both of us when we were having tough times. You know what I mean? That's, uh, I think that's a big theme of what the, the, the loose yeah. is about, of being able to speak, being able to lift each other up rather than knock each other down. And yeah, know, oh, it's great that his, his, his name gets uh, mem remembered here. What, what he did for me was um, not getting right into it, but, but uh, he sort of recognised that we did, I did that. I was doing that bloke thing where, how are you? I'm fine. And actually, I wasn't fine at all. Uh, but, but, but to get a bloke to admit that he's not fine is crikey. You're moving in heaven and earth there. Um, and you're right, that's some of the things we try and address at Looseheads. What he did was he, he, he lived in Ermston, uh, just near Manchester, and he came to where I work in Alderley Edge, and he sat in the coffee shop, took a picture of where I work and said, cappuccino or latte? And, and that was it. And that was enforcing me to come and face the issue. And then he just sat there and, and just listened. And that's sometimes all we need, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but hey, you know, Dave, David, if he was here, he'd be laughing at us. That's, that's yeah, for yeah. absolute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what yeah. I wanted to ask you, Damien, we, we had a chat yesterday about, about the High Performance Podcast and Damien Hughes, the person and the books that I've read that you've written. But, but you know what? Turning the tables back on you, because yeah. you, you start your podcast with this. What, what is High Performance to Damien Hughes? Wow, that's brilliant. I've, I've reflected on that question quite a lot. I think uh, doing the podcast series has made me sort of recalibrate or readjust what I thought it was. I think if I had to sum it up in, I think it's 13 words, it's doing the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. I think it's that idea of high performance isn't about winning trophies or making millions or your Instagram followers. It's about using the resources that you have to do to get the absolute best you can out of it with the knowledge in the moment that that um, that you have to hand. And I think what that comes from, I think where that then leads us to if, to, if that's the headline summary, I think everybody has good days, everybody has bad days. I think when you're doing the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in, the gap is narrower than than everybody else's. So it. So what comes from that is consistency, that you show up and there's a certain level of standard uh, of commitment that you bring to pretty much everything that you do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say about kind of, oh, the Loose Heads podcast is, is linked to the story with your friend David as well, because that's what we kind of want to do on this podcast. We want to tell people's stories and open up and, and share the conversation. And I know that's kind of similar to what you and Jake do on the, the High Performance Podcast. You get athletes and business people and actors, musicians, who we think we all know, but you guys actually tell a story that we don't. And I think that's one of the, the key things that, that you guys really do. And, and, and as you say there, High Performance isn't about winning all the time. It's about you know setting your own goals and your own standards. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that that's been, I mean, I think there's a real appetite for that kind of conversation here, isn't it? That I don't think, I think people are tired of sort of just being given some sort of sanitised airbrush picture of, of, uh, of what success looks like. And I think most people have enjoyed the struggle. It's the stuff in the shadows that intrigues me, the stuff that nobody ever sees. But I think to, to reach that, I think in the world that we're in, I think what you guys are doing and what Jake and I try and do is we try and come at conversations from a place of empathy rather than opinion. You know, I read a great quote from a guy called Bill Bullard and when we started this, I passed it on to Jake and I said, this has to be our standard. This Bill Bullard said, like, opinion is the lowest form of, uh, of knowledge because it requires no empathy, no understanding. You don't have to suspend your ego. You've just got a judgment to pass. Whereas empathy requires you to suspend your ego, listen, step into somebody's world and try and see it through their point of view. And I think what you guys are doing and trying to encourage that conversation uh, is about come at life from a place of empathy and understanding rather than from opinion. You know, like my wife is a psychotherapist and she has a great, like sometimes I'll come home and I'll say something, I'll go, this guy did this or somebody said that and she'll go, if I was them, I would have done the same thing. And what she meant by that was, it's not, it's, if you stepped into their world and you had their experiences and, and, and what's happened to them and all the, and their decision-making criteria, you would have come to the same conclusion. So try and see it from their point of view rather than judge them and, opin and come at it with an opinion. Challenge it. And that's why I think, like, I think social media's got a lot to play for that, that everybody's got to have an opinion. Everybody's got to tell you that, like, I'll give you an example. We, we, had, a, um, we had a guest on uh, recently on the podcast, uh, Saul Campbell. And when we told people that Saul Campbell was coming on, people, like, it was an eye-opener, the, 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 the venom and the vitriol that came of, like, one guy wrote to me, took the trouble to write to me to say, I, and if I can use the language, he said, I'd rather shit in my hand and clap than listen to that wanker. And I was going to write back, and my wife said, don't, don't engage with him, but I was going to write back and say, why don't you just not listen? Why do you need to tell me you're not listening? Why do you feel that, you're, that, that you are so important to tell me that you won't be listening to it? Why don't you just not listen and not tell anyone and just decide that that's your judgment? And you're welcome to your judgment, but... But he copied Saul Campbell in on the message as well, and and I just don't get that that kind of opinion. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like we had somebody, we had somebody not reasonably similar to that, not sort of criticising the way we were doing stuff, and, and and we need to, we absolutely need to run right down the middle of the road, and we try and do that, but but we do try and have some sort of opinion, but. I know you're a great collector of quotes and I consume them and I, I'm a great collector of quotes. I think I started just writing them down when I was probably 20, thinking, oh, that's good. I could learn from that. And now I've got a, a small A5 book full of them. And, and Rob knows this all too well. But, but that opinion, it, people enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought far too often. And then when you lob that into social media, it becomes a really grey area, really opaque world of of opinion and it's it's like reading every toilet door isn't it twitter yeah 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 and and, and it was interesting but when we started it, the podcast like um i've been on social media and um 
I always used to justify that I was doing it for the consultancy part of my business and driving it. And uh, when we did it, I made a very conscious decision just to remove myself from it because um, I just thought it, it's not going to be healthy. So we were doing the podcast and, and the very first comment, I'll tell you this one, was that uh, we put out a post. That's the first guest we had on was Rio Ferdinand and we told people this is coming out. And the very first comment underneath the picture was three cunts. That was, somebody wrote, and there was a picture of the three of us and somebody wrote three cunts. And I looked at it and I said to her, again, I was talking to my wife and I said, I'm not sure I fancy this. And it's not because... I, I'm, I'm like I am quite sensitive, so I'm not going to deny that bit. But I just thought I've grown up in a world where if I chose to speak to somebody like that and to call somebody a name like that, yeah. I've got to accept there's a consequence to my action that somebody's either going to smack you in the mouth, you're going to have to answer for what you've said. So you'd have to feel really strongly to want to say that to somebody. And yet it was the first time I thought, you know what? There's no consequences to this that this guy has done that, and probably just casually just sat on the toilet writing. That's my opinion. And I thought the only way you can do anything about it is you can't complain about it. You can't bark at every car that uh, that drives past. You just have to remove yourself from the conversation. And I just felt it was healthier for me to be able to do that. And part of it was inspired by, I've got my son's 11. And when he was going to big school last year, he, he, he promised him he could have his first phone. And I thought, I need to, it was a good prompt to go, I need to role model better behaviours to him as well. So if I come off social media, when he then says, I'm going to get an Instagram account, I said, no, you're not, mate. This is why you're not. You know, and they can't then label me as a hypocrite for it. But a lot of it's for my mental health as well, because like Mark's just said there, it, it, it is, it's people with the, with the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of any thought that goes behind it. Just um, bringing it back to the point about empathy that you mentioned there, Damien. First of all, the High Performance Podcast is what's got me through lockdown three. Um, Thank you. I've been doing my walk around the harbourside in Bristol and putting it on, getting my headphones on and, and shutting the world out for an hour, which has been really nice. And um, a, bit, a big fan of the Sean Dyche episode, actually, where he said... Um, the best coaches are the best thieves. And that's what I've tried to do with the, with the podcast, I think. Just take little snippets from each, each episode and, and, and steal it, I guess. Um, good. But I guess it's, it's clear <laughs> to see that you have a, a, a good connection. Uh, you build up that rapport, that connection with the guests. Um, and that's how you get the best out of them, I think. Um, and I guess I've, I've, just, um, I've actually just done a, a mental health first aid course this week. And um, lots of different, different opinions about that course, by the way. Um, but one thing I, I found that was quite interesting is that difference between empathy and sympathy. And it's exactly what you just said there. I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's not what you say, it's, it's getting on their level and that connection that you build. So how, how do you, when you're, you know, recording the episodes for High Performance Podcast, how do you get on the level of those, those guests and how do you, get the best out of them yeah well first of all thanks for listening rob and thank you for the like the kind feedback on it um so i'm really chuffed that that you are using bits from it because that's the purpose of it that in terms of putting that content out there for free is about giving people resource to say go and use this yourself um in 
I think I learned years ago in terms of, I'll give you a, a, an example, but I'll, I'll, I'll severely redact the names because of what I'll tell you, it wouldn't be fair. But I remember getting a call years ago from a friend of mine that worked in a sports organisation who asked me to go meet a member of the organisation. And the challenge was, he said, was it, 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 it was to do with his, his prolific shagging about, right? That was the way it was explained to me. And at first, I thought it was a joke. So it was like, what, like what's the issue? And they went, would you just go and meet him? Now, I, I remember driving to this meeting, and I remember in my head thinking, you could come at this from a moral judgment point of view, that if you knew about this guy, he had children, there was children involved in terms of he had a family and things like that. So you could come at it and go, I don't agree with infidelity. Or you could have your opinion of, like, what sort of bloke would do that and things like that. I remember thinking, that's not your job. Your job is not to come at any of this with an opinion because I'm sure he's had the opinions fired at him and that's why he's looking for help, not for judgment. So I remember saying to this guy, can I just step into your world? Just let me step into your world and see it through your eyes. A bit like that question of, if I was you, I would make the same judgment. So you're not a stupid person. So let me understand why you're coming to this conclusion that this is acceptable. And over the course of the conversation, I think because I came at it from a place of seeking to understand rather than judge, what he opened up to at the end of the conversation, I remember thinking, I get why you're doing this. And like, again, I'll be careful of some of the details, but I said to him, where's your mates? There was a pattern of behavior that said that he'd be putting himself in situations where if you had a mate that was a real mate, they'd sort of pull you back from the brink. And he went, I've not really got any mates. And in the conversation we got through, it was uh, this guy had become wealthy, like publicly wealthy at a relatively young age. And his point was, do your friends know how much money you earn? I said, no, and it's irrelevant to us. He went, well, all my friends did. By the time I, I was just out of my teens, everyone knew I was a multimillionaire. And he said, and I don't think I changed, but they did. So his friendship group as a kid had fallen away. He was married, he had friends, but they were all associated with his wife and children. And in the, in the sports environment he was in, he went, I've got mates there, but they'd think me having this conversation was a joke. So the reality was he was in a position where his self-esteem was low, he'd suffered injuries, he'd identified himself as, as, as a, this particular sport for years. And when he was injured or couldn't play or out of form, this pattern of behaviour tended to emerge where he made himself feel better and he had people that were willing to indulge him with it. So I remember it was, a, I mean, I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago, this conversation, but it was a real object lesson of, I would never have discovered that information if I'd have walked into that room with an opinion. The only reason he opened up was because I was seeking to understand and empathise with him rather than judging. And I keep that at the forefront of my mind in terms of with the podcast. Like, I feel I'm like, I've said this to Jake in the past, I feel like I'm in, I'm in the best position because nobody knows who I am. And so Jake is, has got a level of fame and, a, and, and, and sort of credibility within the world of sports broadcasting. So people know him. So I almost get to see what people are like when they don't know who you are. Do you know what I mean? So they can say they're a nice person, but then they can behave like a dick to me or to the sound guys or the people, or the, uh, like the technical people. And there's been a few where 
it's been really interesting. And when I made it, made the point to Jake and said, did you notice that? He was like, I didn't see it because they managed really well with him. They managed a relationship with him. And then it was almost like they let the guard drop when they didn't think anyone else was invested in it. So I feel like I've got a really fortunate position that I can observe some of this stuff. But I think it's important to, to come at it um, with, uh, with empathy, as I've said. I've made a mistake a few times, though, like, um, and I've asked the guys to edit it out. That Again, I won't tell you this one because the guy asked for the conversation to be edited. But there was a bloke that was quite, um, he spoke very much about faith and about his religious faith. And yet he was in a environment where stuff that was proven in a court of law was elite, that was abhorrent was going on. And, and I was interested in asking him how, how did he challenge some of this behavior when he was so public about his faith and his morals and things like that. And I asked it really badly. So I asked it too quickly in the conversation because I was anxious about doing it. So I went in before I'd built any empathy. And then halfway through, I thought, oh, I made a mistake here. So I fudged the question. And in the end, it came out quite messy. And the guy himself came back and said, can you just edit that? Because it, 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 it's almost like a bit of a minefield that what we've said is going to explode on me. So... I think it's a lesson sometimes to say you've got to build empathy. It's a process rather than just jumping in and assuming it's already there. You might come with that intention, but they have to believe in it as well. That's interesting, Damien, you say, you know, you've taken lessons every time you've done the podcast. And I'm, I'm the same as Rob, you know, I've listened to, well, Mark actually said, oh, have you listened to this? And then I hadn't noticed it at the start of the first lockdown, whichever, how many lockdowns we're in now. But since sort of December, when we went into the last lockdown, I've been really keen listening to him. And I agree with Rob, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you do take snippets and lessons. And I actually learned from the way you and Jake handle the conversation for when we do the Loose Heads podcast. And has that been really good for you to, to, to learn on the job as well? And I guess during this difficult time as well, you do have people coming on and wanting to listen to you guys because you are giving that positive insight. Yeah, I think so. And again, thank you. It is incredibly kind of you to sort of make this, especially because you, you do this um, far more professionally than I do because I am literally learning on the job. Like, I remember the... Like, I remember the first interview we ever did was with Ben Ainsley, right? And we went down to like Portsmouth and we were on the Solon where we met him. And I remember being sat there with my microphone and I'm sat next to Jake, Ben Ainsley's there. And uh, the best metaphor I can give you is like, you know when you stand at a train station and there's a train that's, that's not stopping and it just flies through and you're on the platform and the whole platform shakes Right. I remember sat there with my microphone, sort of, with a few questions in my head. And then Jake went, right, you ready? We'll kick off. And we started. And it felt like that moment where the whole platform began to shake. And I remember being sat there thinking, shit, he's good. <laughs> About Jake. Like, I was in, like, where you know you're in the presence of somebody that's actually a master of their craft. I remember sort of like admiring it, thinking, bloody hell, he's amazing. And then thinking, shit, I've got to jump on that train. And <laughs> like just having this idea of just close my eyes and just jump and ask a question and hope that I can somehow hold on. And I feel like that was the start of the journey. And I, and I don't feel like I'm doing much more than just holding on to a speeding train at times. Hey guys, it's Brad Shields here. I'm a Lucid ambassador. You're listening to a Lucid podcast. Mental health is just as important as physical health. Damien, just 
for the benefit of everybody else, because I think I sort of I, I've, I've I've been privileged enough to have an insight into into why you do what you do, which yeah. is, which I'm I'm sort of I'm it's a deeply humbling story, but all that you know the the the, the shaping of of your character through what your father did in that in that boxing gym and that and that you know. You're gonna have to be on your game here, fellas, because if you get if you come in with the wrong attitude, you'll get hurt. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you know all that stuff. It'd be brilliant just to hear you just talk around that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I got. I was happy to sort of explain a bit about uh, my dad's background. So, um, I grew up in a boxing gym. So it's. A, I mean, that's a start of an unusual story in its own right as a sentence, but. Um, most people's impression of boxing gyms is sort of like are in sort of gritty inner city areas of often deprivation. And that's no different from um, where I grew up. So before I um, was even born, my dad had set up a boxing gym in North Manchester in an area called Collyhurst. Now, um, there was a study done in the early 2000s that suggested the, the area that we brought up in was categorised as Europe's third poorest district, which is not on any street side or anything to advertise it, but it gives you an idea of like a lot of the social deprivation, the high unemployment um, and all the other kind of social ills that you can imagine. But it's where I grew up, so you know no better for it. But my dad had set up the boxing gym and his own story was interesting. The reason, like, he, like his, his own origin story was he'd grown up as an illegitimate child in Catholic post-war Manchester. Um, so the stigma of that, of not having a father and not knowing who his father was, had sort of led him to be um, a bit of an outsider, even in his own family. He was like a, um, there was a bit of shame attached to him. And he'd sort of, his sport was boxing and he'd gone into it. And because uh, he didn't have a father figure looking after him, he'd ended up getting himself hurt. He, had, he was thrown in and overmatched and things like that. And he got himself hurt. And I think those two experiences shaped what he did. So he wanted to become a father figure to lost souls in many ways. And he wanted to go and right the wrongs of what he'd experienced in boxing. So he ended up being uh, incredibly successful at it. That I mean, he was, um, he, uh, he was illiterate. Uh, so he'd left school at 14 uh, and he taught himself to read and write. And really, he was like a self-educated man in the world of boxing but he came at it with a really strong moral compass of doing the right thing because he'd seen that, you know, you, you play football, you play rugby, but you don't, but you only box. There's no sort of adjective attached to it. And it, so it is a sport where you can get hurt. And uh, he had this idea that he wanted to produce champions, but do it in a certain way with a certain style. And this is where myself and my two brothers and my sister were born and brought up in, in this world. And I think, there's a great phrase that they use at university that they say, we don't do research, but we do do me-search, where we often try and understand our own backgrounds and our own biographies when we get older. And I think as I've got older, I've, I've become to appreciate that there's two strands to what I do now, that, that their origins were in this boxing club. The one was about being around high performance. So from as far back as I can remember, I, I was around guys that were... Um, preparing to go off to Olympic Games as for, to box for Britain or, or guys that were making the transition from amateur to professional boxing who then when they got into it ended up becoming British, European, Commonwealth 
and world champions. So I was around people that would come into our house and I'd sit and I'd watch them as they'd sort of analyse opponents on video. And I saw all the work that went on in the, in the shadows. And I think I never got blinded by the bright lights of, 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 uh, of the ring and the occasion when they won it. I was always intrigued by the work that happened in the shadows where the preparation, the sacrifice, the discipline, the hard work that was invested in it. And I think that's what really intrigues me now in terms of the work of helping people try and establish their own definition of high performance. But the second thing is about how the power of a culture or a community can be harnessed for the greater good. Because I gave you a bit of background in terms of the area where we grew up, but the boxing club was almost like a sanctuary for a lot of people from that. The, the vast majority of people that came in that boxing club never came in to set foot in a boxing ring, but they came in because they were desperate to be just recognised, to be treated with respect, courtesy, be treated, come into a place where they could feel safe in so many ways. And that's what the boxing club did. And um, that sort of power of a community and a culture, how it can be harnessed for a, for a competitive advantage, really did shape a lot of the work that I do now. So I'll give you like a nice end to the story, if you like, that um, my dad's very ill now, as I mentioned at the start, he's got advanced dementia. But um, back in 2018, Manchester Council named the road after him, uh, chose to name a road after him in, in the Collier's district of Manchester in tribute to the work that he'd done. And it was like a really bleak, cold January day when we had the, uh, the ceremony to name the road and like Andy Byrne and the mayor come down to unveil it. And there was about 300 people showed up at uh, this event to pay tribute to him. And I'd estimate, I remember looking around and thinking about 80% of the people stood here have never set foot in a boxing ring in their life and I've never had any intention to. But all of them, when you spoke to them, they wanted to come and say, you know what, the, like the boxing club your dad founded shaped me as a person, a partner, a parent, you know, in, in a wide range of different ways. And I think that was a, it, it, it was so seminal that so many of my lessons, like I find myself sort of talking about um, like the language of it. I unconsciously talk it. So I talk about, you know, getting put on your arse or taking an eight count or, having to sort of bite down on your gum shield. And I use phrases like that, that I sometimes have to stop myself and go, I'm, I'm talking about, it's almost like the shadows of my childhood that talk about, I mean, the biggest influence, I'll, I'll share this story with you, was the, like, the one that shaped me is, uh, I remember I was about 14, and my dad realised quite quickly that, uh, that he wanted us to box, but he didn't want us to go and fight seriously, because he knew how tough a world it was. And I think he realised that, that, that like we were game, myself and my brothers, but we weren't particularly good. But I remember one day, I was about 14, I was in the ring, I was sparring, I was doing a sparring session. And his whole mantra was that when you're in the ring, it's all about learning, it's all about using your brain. And I got thrown in with a kid and I was overmaxed and I realised in the first couple of seconds, I thought I'm better than him, I'm stronger. So like a 14 year old idiot that I was, I took a liberty. So I started throwing big shots and pushing the kid around and banging him with big right hands. And uh, it was horrible. When I think back on it now, it was, it, 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 it was bullying, I'm ashamed to admit. 
And when we finished the three round sparring, I'm sort of climbing out of the ring feeling like the cock of the walk. And uh, my dad comes over. And as I'm climbing out of the ring, he says, where are you going? I said, I've finished. He went, no, that wasn't a sparring session. He said, you, you, you've hardly got a broken sweat. He said, stop it. <laughs> and what he did next, it still sends us chill down my spine now. He put in a young professional boxer with me, a lad that had just turned professional, and he put him in the ring with me. And I'd say the next 12 minutes of my life were the longest 12 minutes I've ever endured. He just put this lad in the ring and he just humiliated me for three rounds that didn't hurt me. So he didn't do anything that was like a liberty. He just kept knocking me head back. And he just made me look a dick. And I, and I was aware as it was happening, why this was happening, but couldn't articulate it. But everybody in the gym stopped just to watch this big slice of humble pie get served up for me. <laughs> And as I was climbing out the ring, I felt like I could feel the tears, like fighting the tears. And as I got out, my dad said, how do you feel? And I don't think I could speak. I was that upset. And he pulled me to one side and he said, oh, how you feel now is exactly what you did to that boy just before. And he said, I'm telling you now, you never, ever take a liberty with anybody, not in this gym, not anywhere. You never abuse that power dynamic. Now, I'm talking 30 odd years ago now, and it's still, it embarrasses me, but makes me cringe when I think about it. But that was the power of the kind of culture that was in there. And when I see it now, you know, like you see people that sort of abuse their status or things like that. And mentally I end up going back to that moment in the gym and just thinking, you need somebody to give you a right-hander. You need a level of here, somebody that just brings you down to earth and makes you realise this isn't the way that a decent community or a decent culture has to operate. I get the impression from what you've said in the past that your dad, your dad then wasn't teaching his son a lesson. He would have done that for anyone. Oh, yeah. He, honestly, yeah. It wasn't like he didn't single me out for that. It, like, it just wasn't accepted. It was the idea of taking a liberty... But, yeah. but, but there was all kinds of things like there was all kinds of like I talk about this idea on the podcast that, that we talk about non-negotiable or what I call trademark behaviours they had them there like nobody was using that language then but it was like you, you couldn't swear you weren't allowed to swear so you go in the gym and you'd have lads that were villains like lads that would have just come out of prison you know like people that had a reputation for being quite fearsome characters they'd come in the gym and and they wouldn't use any bad language. And it wasn't a moral judgment. It wasn't that, oh, we don't agree with bad language. It was bad language was a sign of ill, Ill discipline. Because if you can't think of anything to fill the silence with other than a swear word, that indicates you lack the discipline to control your mouth. And if you lack the discipline in that small way of controlling your mouth, you lack the discipline in the ring to maintain uh, the plan. So there was all things like that about discipline or timekeeping was another one that, you know, if you don't show up on time, that's an indication that, that you're not prepared to do the uncomfortable stuff. So yeah. like there was a lot. So I ended up working in the corner with my dad. Like when I got older, I used to go and carry the spit bucket. And so, so my first ever job was actually being the ring card girl. So, um, <laughs> so I ended up sort of like all my seminal experiences. So there was a boxing promoter called Mickey Duff. And uh, I remember being with my dad once and I used to sort of go and help sort of take the bandages and get ice and things like that in the dressing room. And I just loved being around it. And uh, this promoter called Mickey Duff, we were at the GMEX Centre 
and somebody had let him down and he'd come up to me and he said, uh, he said, do you want to earn 20 quid? I said, yeah, what for? He said, you have to get in the, in the ring in between every round and carry the card round. <laughs> so I went, yeah, I'll do it. I think it's 20 quid. I got in the ring, right? About 8,000 people in the GMX centre all stood up and booed me. <laughs> and the whole team thinking, hang on, I didn't sign up for this. And he showed it that night. Like, I remember going into school the next day, my teacher, I'd watched it on sports night. And he went, were you, uh, were you walking around the ring last night at the gym? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, all my experiences were sort of shaped um, around that. So I did, like my, uh, my early stuff, it was just really powerful um, sort of seeing that there was a lad, sorry, I know, sorry, I was going to tell you. Sorry, there was a lad, and I remember years later, there was a lad who used to, who, who I, he was probably one of the most talented British boxers of the last 30 years, but nobody's ever heard of him. And the reason you never heard of him was that he came from a family where there was no work ethic, right? So he, he and, it, and it was a badge of pride that his granddad had never had a job. His, his mum and dad had never worked. And he'd come from this, uh, this family that used to pride themselves on never working, but he was phenomenally talented. And he was a sort of lad. The, the example I always use is he would always get up and run, but he would go for a run when he woke up. He would never wake up to go for a run. You know what I mean? Like he'd never set his alarm clock at seven o'clock in the morning and have to get out of a warm, comfy bed to go and run. But he would do the run, but only when it was, was when it suited him. And he was always like two minutes late for training and he'd come in. And what he was skilled at doing was he'd walk in and he'd be late and everyone else would be all ready. And he'd have a joke or a song or he'd do something to distract and everyone would laugh and let it. And anyway, he ended up fighting for like a minor world title belt at the... At the the Manchester Evening News Arena, he was on a big bill. And I'm working in the corner. And he, he boxed his opponent's head off. For the first six rounds, he boxed his head off and his skills were amazing and he was slipping punches and, and he was phenomenal. But his opponent was just dogged and tenacious and stayed in. And from the sixth round, his mentality changed because it now wasn't about skill. It was about having to go into an area of discomfort. It was having to make yourself uncomfortable of, of finding a way to to dig in and find him resolve. And he had no frame of reference that he'd ever done it. He had nothing that he'd ever done in his life that gave him the evidence of, I can cope with this. So he was coming back and he was coming to the corner in between rounds. He was going, how long left? How many rounds left? And he went from trying to win to then desperate not to lose and yeah. doing what he could to get through it. And the last six rounds were the ones that stuck in the judge's mind and he lost on a, on a split decision. And when he was crying in the dressing room afterwards and uh, this wasn't fair and this wasn't fair and he was cheated. And on the way home, my dad just said to me, he said, he didn't lose that fight tonight. He's lost that. Yeah. You know, all those one minute late, so all those two minutes late over the last 10 years. And we've told him and we've told him and he's chosen to ignore it. So he said, just almost like limit your sympathy. You know what I mean? Because he's had the opportunity to know different and chosen not yeah. to learn different. And there's so many little stories like that 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 I've sort of, that have shaped my uh, my sort of career subsequently that I, like I feel blessed that that was the environment I grew up in if if um, if our dear friend David Roberts were listening which indeed he is he would turn the conversation to um, his beloved Manchester United, which I know is also your beloved Manchester United. And you've got four Liverpool fans on here. So it's, I, 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 do, this, I do this advisedly. However, I, 
probably a story. Life is full of stories, isn't it? Three years ago at Christmas time, my wife insisted that we were going to go to Primark to buy all the stocking fillers, and I thought, really? <laughs> anyway, um, we went, and it was we went. Uh, we, we were the first people in the shop on a Sunday morning, and I said to her, I "Tell you what, you you do all the shopping." And I kind of I'm rubbish at shopping. I just don't I don't think it's not a sport to me, so I don't like it. So I went into the little cafe and and I saw Alex Ferguson's autobiography, and I thought, hmm, nobody about. There was a lady cleaning the coffee shop and said, "Do you want a coffee?" She made me a coffee with a kettle. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and I sat there, and to hide to hide my blushes just in case anyone was to come into Primark and Stockport. I hid the Manchester United autobiography, Alex Ferguson's autobiography, inside a book of the Lake District. And indeed, a mate did come in and went, oh, what are you reading there? Oh, Lake District. I couldn't admit it. But <laughs> I, I read that book in, I, I went back and I went to my little fat dads and I, I went to the lad who's big Man United fan. I said, have you got this? And he said, yeah, I've got them all. Next week he came with it and I finished it off. And I, your, your thing is culture matters. Yeah. And then... Probably semicolon culture matters a lot. Now in Manchester United, I know it's your passion, um, yeah. but but you've written about Alex Ferguson as well. Just give us the lowdown on on that twenty-seven years of misery that we had to endure. <laughs> That's a lifetime, twenty-seven years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I can appreciate that, the, the, and and that's why, like, trying to be magnanimous, I can see that it was. Uh, like winning it last year for you guys must have just been like a, like just such a big relief. But it's <laughs> one that I think there's something the delay probably made it sweeter for you. I can imagine. But uh, yeah, Ferguson <laughs> was a fascinating guy. Sorry, we'll move on from that. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be <laughs> magnanimous. Can you see? And I'm, I'm failing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was fascinating, Ferguson. I think that that. His career deserves like a reflection that I'm like from a cultural point of view. So what's been interesting, like on the podcast, for example, is we've interviewed five different people that were members of, of, of his club over that 26 years. So people that were there at the start, people that then Van Persie, his final signing that came at the end. And I think when you say to them, what was it about it? I think there's something really powerful that they all say. There was no ambiguity. In a world of uncertainty, he removed ambiguity in terms of you knew the standards that were expected of you. And I think that's a great way of defining culture. That yeah. when you say to people, so what were the standards? And they went, there was three. And I often talk about the best cultures, false prioritization. They say to you, these are the rules of the game. And if you don't like them, that's fine, but you don't have to be here. But the three behaviours that he built Manchester United on were, the first one was relentlessness. So he had that great phrase that we never get beat, we occasionally run out of time, but we never get beat. But that idea of we just keep coming at you, but that relentlessness isn't just about like Fergie time, winning games at the death. It was about the idea that we win a trophy, we celebrate briefly, and then we start planning the assault on winning it again. So like I read an interview recently, Wayne Rooney spoke about when they won the Champions League in 2008, he said Ferguson went to the after, at the, at the after party. He said, then he got up on the microphone partway through and said, right lads, uh, just let you know, I'm off to bed. I want a fresh head in the morning when I start planning, now we're going to win it again next year. 
And Wayne Rooney said, it was almost like, he, he said he remembers at the time thinking, just have a night off. <laughs> now he's a bit older, he went, what a brilliant symbolism that he was setting to the mob. Enjoy your night, but be clear, we need to repeat this. So that yeah. relentlessness, that idea of we just keep going for you, um, was, uh, was a powerful one. The second one was the idea of courage. And I like his definition of this, that this isn't physical courage of smashing into tackles and being reckless. It was the moral courage that he defined of uh, the guy that wants the ball when you're getting beat in the last minute of a game that's demanding that you pass the ball to him because he's got the courage to try to play to win, not to play, not to lose. And that's why he, he spoke about the likes of Cantonaro, Cristiano Ronaldo as having real courage because they were constantly on that front foot gambling. So there's a lovely story that Roy Keane tells on this, where he says that um, they had um, like quite early on uh, in the um, when they won the first league after 26 years, there was like a video that Steve Bruce had recorded. I don't know if you remember it, mm. and uh, it featured all the players, and there was royalties that ever all the players were due. And Keane says that each player, if they divided it up, would get something like 400 quid. And the first team went, that's nothing to us. So they decided that what they'd do is they'd put it all in a pool. So it was about 16 grand and they'd split it up. So then they'd just draw a name out and whoever got it made the money. But the class of 92, as they became known, like Neville's and Beckham's and Skulls, were all around there. But they said to them, your apprentices, 400 quid, probably a, a large amount. So you can opt out, take the money and walk. And, and, walk. and most of them did, apart from... Um, Nicky Butt and Paul Scholes, they went, no, put our name in the hat as well. We want to be included. And when they drew it out, Cantona drew out the uh, uh, the prize to win 16 grand. And the next day, Keane recounts his story. But Cantona turned in with two, turned up with two checks for eight grand each mm. and gave it to Scholes and Nicky Butt. And the point he was making was he was rewarding them for gambling for the win. Courage. That was the courage to go in and, 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 and try to win big. And I think that's a big symbol of what they were doing. And then the third one was be a team player. So his famous phrase that there's nobody bigger than Manchester United uh, epitomised that when you see, for example, Bobby Charlton tells this story that Beckham, um, towards the end of his period at the club, had got new management. And one of the rumours around it was that he was being advised that whenever he scored a goal, he should run away from his teammates, not towards them because his PR advisors were saying, it'll make a better shot of you on the back page of the paper without anyone else being on it. So if you can remember like that famous free kick he scores for England against Greece, the iconic image of him stood there with his hands out, there's nobody else in the shot. And the other advice was that if, if somebody else scored a goal, jump on the back and get your arm around the neck because it'll force your head into the shot of a paper. And whether that's true or not, that was the rumour that was circulating. And when they saw this pattern of behaviour repeating, that was a big catalyst to get rid of him because suddenly in, in your head, you're more important than the team and the team would always come first. So I think Ferguson was brilliant at laying down those uh, blueprint behaviours, if you like, to say these are the rules of the game. And then he was consistent in his application of them. So you go into any sports environment, go into football, go into rugby, Go into anywhere where, where you've got a group of people. And when I speak to them and say, what do you want off your head coach? What do you want out of this environment? If I was to summarise the responses that I've got over the years, they say, 
Transparency is the first one. Tell me the rules of the game. And then secondly, consistency. Apply the rules of the game. And I think what doing the interviews with people now that are reflecting on it for the podcast, that comes out every time. There was no ambiguity. The transparency was there and the consistency was just relentlessly applied. So you knew that if you were going to get recruited, they were the standards. If you were going to get dropped, you knew why. If they were going to sell you, the reason was clear. Yeah. And that then allows you to go, well, I've signed up for this and therefore I'll, 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 I'll give my best in this environment. One of my one of my learnings from one of your observations, Damien, was was probably three or four years ago. You and I had a chat, and and, and you you just just threw casually into the conversation a, a line which I then took to heart and thought, I fail on that, and I've I've consciously worked very hard on that, and it, and, and 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 I'm an old lag, aren't I? So you, we're never too old to learn. But it's the um, it was a story about when you, you, you and it, it probably repeats itself. But you, you went into an office where or a business where the boss had said, we're all equal here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and before yeah. you know it, you've walked, you've walked through the car park and into reception and you've realised, no, we're not all equal because there's, there's car parking spaces for the MD and the FD and the this, and you walk into reception and there's pictures of the bosses up at the, and it's not equal at all. Yeah. And, and, I, and I suddenly thought in my life, am I, am I, am I saying things that are, are contradictory? Um, and I've worked, and, and, and you know what, that little story, life is full of stories, it just allowed me to reflect on my own, you know, and, I, and I've, like you've, you've been, you've had the courage enough to tell us about that story when you were 14 year old getting in the boxing ring with somebody you could not probably beat. I look back at some of the times when I was a pompous fool and I just, sometimes you just cringe. I think humility is something you either have or it's going to, it's going to find you. Um, and, and therefore you better develop it. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I mean, that's an interesting point around humility that, that when I try and explain humility to people, this isn't about saying standing in front of a posh house or a brand new car and telling everyone how down to earth you are. That's not humble. That's not like, I've got a problem. You know, when you see like these teams that like sweep, like tidy dressing room and then post it on social media, what's your fucking point? Either, either just do it and do it quietly or make a big show of it, but then don't claim to be humble while making a big show of it. That's not humility. I've got a real issue on that. And yeah. so I think humility is around, like there's three stages to developing humility. The first stage is peak idiot stage, right? We all have to pass through peak idiot stage. So peak idiot stage is where you, like think of like the early stages of X Factor. The bit that everyone watches that I, I'll flick it on if it's on telly is the bit of the early stages when the idiots are there, when they're saying to you, I'm going to sing like Mariah Carey and then sound like a cat being strangled. That's funny because we can recognise peak idiot in others, but we're blind to it ourselves. But once we get beyond that and go, you know what, I don't know, and just, just admit I'm maybe not as good as I think I am or there's more to learn, you get into what I then describe as the second stage is the valley of humility. And that's characterised by just going, you tell me more i'm not sure let's be curious let's explore let's find out more about it and then when you get beyond that stage you then reach what i describe as the hill of knowledge and the hill of knowledge goes i think i understand why why this works or i think i've got an understanding but you can always go back down the hill to the valley to get more information to bring back with you and i think 
the, the, so so often we all get stuck at peak idiot stage. Yeah. You know what I mean? and, and that's where I think you need somebody sometimes to come in and almost like navigate your way down into the valley to go, is that really what is the best thing to do? Like, I remember, <laughs> I remember working with the team years ago, right, where I ended up getting a bad injury, right? And one of the things that this team was, we all stick together. And I got a bad injury uh, while I was working with them. I was on a train on my own an hour later being sent off because I'd, I had an injury and it was like, oh, you better go back home. I remember going, well, hang on a minute. Like, afterwards, like you said we were all in this together. And yet as soon as I got an injury, you packed me off because rather than looking after me and treating me as one of the team, it was... And, and you see this so often, like sport or business, you see so many different things like the car parking space and then telling you that everybody's equal. Well, no, you're not because you've given somebody the best sign and it's about what you do when nobody else is watching. Like the guy that used to get out of bed and do his road work. That's the stuff that intrigues me, the work in the shadows because it's the sh it's not the outcome stuff when, because anyone can jump on your back and celebrate when you're successful. Any idiot can do that. What are you doing day after day, the consistency of doing the right thing, even when you can get away with not doing the right thing, mm. is what really intrigues me in so many different mm. in so many different cultures. It's not sport per se, it's any culture where you can go in and see this kind of stuff. You know, like people treating cleaners like shit while telling you that we're a really ethical business. Well, I'm going, no, you're not, because I've seen the way that you treat your staff. I had a mate at the start of the pandemic that his business was saying that, oh, your mental health matters. And then they sent him off into the teeth of a recession, made him redundant. And he'd asked them and said, is there anything you can put me on furlough? I've got two young children. And he said, is there anything you can put me on furlough just to give me a cushion to do it? And this is literally, while well, he showed me the information that he said, your mental health is more important than anything. And yet when they had the opportunity to behave with kindness, they just got rid of him. Now, the point is, my mate was okay, but... Imagine you still working in that business when you're yeah. hearing bosses tell you that, you know, being kind to people is the most important of our characteristics and then they treat people like shit. Suddenly there's ambiguity there in your world of, whoa, hang on a minute, I'm not sure I feel that comfortable in this because who wants to work with hypocrites? It's interesting as well, I mean, pulling back right to the start, Dave, uh, Davey, when you said kind of like, you know, high performance isn't just about winning. And, and I think when... You talk there about like, you know, businesses, sports teams, thinking about mental health as well. I guess if you're in the right headspace as an employee and you know if something does go wrong, your employer is there to offer you the advice, offer you that support, you are going to get the best results. And that doesn't matter if you're crossing the right line and, and playing at Old Trafford or you sit in an office nine to five, Monday to Friday. What you do and your work that you do relates to all of that, doesn't it? it encompasses all of that. 100%, Chris. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you're making. I think... There's a, there's a concept that's worth sort of investigating in this that uh, if anyone's listened to this, it goes, oh, I wonder where it's going more. Have a look at the work of a lady called Amy Edmondson. She's a pioneer behind this concept of psychological safety. So psychological safety says that you feel safe enough to put your hand up and say, I don't know what, but you know what, I've just made a mistake there and not get hammered for it. And yet so many organisations sort of turn a blind eye to it I'll give you, again, another good example. Remember a few years ago, um, a mate of mine was the head coach of a, of, um, of, of, of a rugby team, and I'll leave it as rugby rather than being any more specific on that. And um, I went in to go and see him, and he said to me, oh, would you just speak to players about something? And 
we were doing some work with the players and I deliberately thought, I'll test this out. I threw a question to the room that I knew that they wouldn't necessarily know the answer to. I wanted to see what was happening. So then I threw the question and then just stood back. And you know that horrible silence that's where it feels uncomfortable. I always say to coaches, don't ever feel that. See what happens. If you want to know what your culture's like, throw a question in and then leave that discomfort. But you prepare yourself just to ride that moment of discomfort out. And what happened was I threw the question in and there was silence. And then one of the young boys at the front of the room tried to answer it. He tried to sort of uh, fill the discomfort with an answer. And he got it wrong, right? But the point was, it, it almost didn't matter what he did. What It was what happened behind him that was most intriguing to me. Two of the senior players sat against the wall. And again, this is always interesting. I always call that the sniper position. So these two guys sat next to each other, covering each other, but their back was to the wall. So nobody's behind them and they're looking into the room. And what they did was they immediately nudged each other and started sniggering and said something. So I stopped the meeting and I said, uh, this is a public meeting, what have you just said? And he went, uh, nothing. So you obviously said something because you've made each other laugh. I'm just interested. What have you said? Share it with the group. Went, no, no, I didn't say anything. And I said, you did. And we're going to have another moment of discomfort until you're prepared to share it. I'm just interested of what, uh, of what you did. And then in the end, one of them went, we were taking the piss out of him for what he'd said. And I said, okay, fine, that's okay. So it's okay to me. But then I said, let's just pause for a moment because you think that's irrelevant, what you've just done. You think that's banter. You think that's the way that we do things here. I said, but let's just play through psychologically the ripple effects of that moment. So I said to the young boy, I said, how do you feel that you've got two older professionals that you've, that you've tried to solve a problem for the group here and you've got two of your older professionals that are laughing behind your back and making you feel an idiot. And he said, again, excuse my language, you went, I think they twats. I said, okay, fine. So I said to these two older players, I said, right, let's imagine that in your next game that you're in the last minute of the game and you've got a young lad that's been thrown on as a substitute and you see an opportunity for a, for a match-winning pass, but he's got the opportunity to hide he could get away with not coming and showing for the ball. And I said, do you think somewhere in his unconscious, when he sees that it's you that's in trouble, that you're the one that's going to take the rap for this, the fact that he now thinks you're a twat for what you've done might impact on how he chooses uh, to respond? And they went, yeah, possibly. I said, right. And that's because you've chosen to ignore the rules of psychological safety. You've thought it's easier to get the quick win of laughing at a kid that's put his hand up. And I said, and now let's think about the other repercussions of it. There's other young people here that have seen that when they put their hand up, put their head above the parapet, you shoot it off. How likely do you think they're going to come and admit that they need to improve the game or work on other areas of it? Because I'll tell you what the answer is. They suddenly feel afraid to do that. So what we're going to get in the room is apathy, where people go, you know what, let somebody else solve the problem. People just nod along as if they understand when they really don't because you've got two senior players there that think, well, you know what, I'm the king of this domain. It's fine that I'm the alpha and I can fire shots and laugh at people. So psychological safety is two easy words to say, but the impacts and the ripple effect of it, of choosing to ignore it, is huge. And this is where, in any environment, but if we're talking about sport in particular, this is where I'll, I'll often say to coaches, like, I'll be their eyes and ears initially to point it out to them. 
and say, you need to be doing this. You need to be on this. Your staff needs to be comfortable in doing this. Like years ago, I worked, at, I was at a club where um, some of the senior players, like there was a physio that had been, uh, he was an assistant physio and the senior physio had left and this guy got appointed. He got appointed to a position that he didn't want and he wasn't qualified for, but the club needed him to cover a gap. And the senior players bullied this physio and made his life miserable. And I remember being so disgusted with the coach when at the end of the year, he got rid of the physio for what he felt was a lack of competence. And I was so disgusted because I said to him, you have just un unraveled a big part of psychological safety in this culture because you put that guy in above his head. He didn't apply for that job. You put him in and he helped you out. And you've allowed these players here to bully him out of a role. And I said, this guy has done seven years qualifications to get to this. And you've just ignored that because you've got a couple of blokes that felt that they wanted to abuse the power dynamic and establish that they were better than him in some way. And I said, imagine all the young apprentices that have seen this behavior happen, that a guy that's been put in a position to step up has been bullied out of the club because he wasn't good enough for the role. You've not helped him or supported him. I said, what do you think the message to them is? Don't admit fallibility. Don't try and learn. Don't take yourself out of your comfort zone. Again, you ignore these areas of psychological safety. You're right, whether it's sport or business, you create ambiguity and uncertainty, which from a mental health point of view is poison. Very, very powerful, that. Two fantastic stories. And I'm very fortunate in my day job to be able to work very close with Bristol Bears and Pat Lamb. I'm not sure if you've ever spoken to Pat Lamb. Um, I'm mates with uh, Dan McFarlane and Dan and, and Pat were at Connacht together. And so yeah. I know of him and, and I know he speaks so highly of him as a bloke. Yeah, he's, he's, I could listen to him all day. He's a fascinating bloke. And um, he says, we had him on the podcast in, in lockdown one and he, he just said, culture is a, a four-letter word and, it, and it's love. You, you've got to love the next person because you'll do a better job for them if you love them. Um, and the other thing that I, I've been fortunate enough to sit in on a, on a Friday morning meeting at, at Bears when they're, they've got a, a game the next day and he gets all the players so they, they go through maybe five stages of the meeting and after each stage of the meeting they get all the players to stand up and sit in a different spot and now I know why that might be because it changes the dynamic and, and, and all of that but yeah no that's fascinating yeah well well, thanks Rob and, I, and, and I'd love what Pat does you know that like I, I love again he was doing some of this stuff at Connor in terms of just just being a decent person, you know what I mean? Like, the, the, like I'd I'd argue that 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 love is one way of doing it, or kindness is another four letter word. Or kind is a four letter word that sums up any culture that I'd want to be a part of. I mean, to build on that, that when we uh, when that, like when we sat down with uh, Sia Khaleesi on uh, on the podcast, that uh, I was desperate to get hold of him because my mate had worked with him down in Cape Town, and. Uh, my mate had just said what a decent bloke he was. And he had a great, he, he, I said to him, what is it makes him decent? And he said, he said, he's the best hugger I've ever met in my life. And I went, right, I like that. That's a good starting point. And he went, but the brilliant thing is he's consistent about his hugs. So he said, if he meets the president of South Africa, he'll get one. When he sees the cleaning staff at the Stormers, they'll get the same hug. And he went, he's consistent. 
So on the basis of that, I went, we need to get him on. So I ended up chasing him for about six months. And then in the end, I think just my persistence wore him down. He went, oh, go on then, we'll do it. And uh, he came on. And, did we, and what did he describe as, as a non-negotiable behaviour? Kindness. Yeah. First one he said, kindness. He said, I'll fight for a teammate, but I'll die for a member of my family. And he said, yeah. to establish that love, that, that family connection, he said, you're guaranteed that. And he spoke about just understanding people, go and make the time to those social bonds, the softer skills of just connecting with people was at the heart of everything that he'd done. So I think it's one of these that people talk, like you see some of the dinosaurs on this, go, oh, this is soft skills, what's this got to do? But the soft skills lead to the hard edge of performance. If you don't take this bit seriously, forget sustained, consistent, high performance. Everyone's going to make mistakes. Everyone's going to um, fall. How you sort of build a culture that can cushion people for that is is what all high-performing cultures uh, are consistent. So, like Mark mentioned Ferguson before, what's really interesting is I know like the public caricature, and I'm sure you guys as Liverpool fans sort of buy into the ranting and the red face and the raving and the hairdryer and that kind of view. You speak to anyone that knew him or worked with him. Empathy, decency, kindness. So, I like when people like when I wrote a book on Ferguson. It was funny because I got people going, "Oh, I hate Alex Ferguson," and you go, "Yeah, I get why you hate the public perception of him if you don't support United." But the people that know him characterize him by his decency. So I say, so if you believe the public caricature, you are, you've either got to believe that he defied millions of years of evolutionary psychology to believe that shouting at people was the most effective way, or you've maybe got to challenge your own perception that maybe you're wrong. Maybe your, your judgment of him isn't an accurate, fully, fully rounded picture. Anyone, anyone who's, who's, who's listening to this, expecting this to be about rugby, God forbid. Um, my observation, when, when I read The Barcelona Way, The Barcelona Way, I, I think is a book we should all read. It's, it's, not a, it, it, it's a textbook and it's not about football, it's about culture. And, and in that, you, you outline the various cultures that are in operation and you, and you sort of plump on the commitment culture, which yeah. is the one. And, and I, I flicked through it last night and I, was de- I delighted myself in that my copy is A, well-thumbed, and B, I've even got little pencil marks and, and oh, highlighted bits. So it is, it's a textbook. I'm, I think I'm going to do well, quite well in my O-level. I might get a C. That's not the right O-level. That ages me. <laughs> but that, that commit, because building that, you outline that, that wonderful thing when the least qualified guy for the job at Barcelona was Pep Guardiola. But Pep Guardiola got the job because he was not entrenched in his views, I, I believe. That, that's yeah. what my belief was. And, and, and the other observation, sorry, I'm hogging this, but, but when, I, when, I, when I was at my peak incompetence, aged probably 25, yeah. uh, living, living in Twickenham, I, I wandered into Twickenham High Street and I, I was probably, well, no, there's no probably about it, incredibly um, pretentious. And I bought uh, the book by Edward de Bono, um, called I am right you are wrong and, and in that he, he, what little I took from it because it's heavy going is 
is there's a move in life from rock logic to water logic. So actually, we all have a duty upon ourselves to get rid of some of the preconceptions and misconceptions we hold, some of the beliefs we have, and just see it from another person's point of view and move from rock logic to water logic. And I, I think, Damien, that's what you do. Well, well, thank you. I mean, that's why the, the, the Bono stuff is. Um, so my business name is Liquid Thinker. And when people say, oh, you call it that for you, I'll say, well, it's a multiple choice quiz. So one is that Edward de Bono spoke about, speaks about 80% um, of our problems in life because we're solid in our thinking. So liquid thinking is the opposite of that being fluid. And the other reason is I was sat in a pub with my mate trying to come up with a catching iron for a business. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's option A or option B or option C is both, which is the correct answer. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I, I, I'm, so thank you for sort of uh, the reference. But I think a lot of it is about just going in and helping people challenge preconceptions or judgments on them. That one of my favourite questions I like asking head coaches came from years ago. There was a head coach I was working with who described one of his players as a dickhead. And <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And I said, is he a dickhead or is he just a dickhead for you? What? I'm, I'm interested. I don't know. I'm just interested. Is he genuinely just a dickhead where anybody that meets him would come away with that impression? Or does he just act like a dickhead for you? And when the head coach knew what I wasn't trying to make fun of him, he went, I don't know. So we decided to explore how, how you could find out. And we came up with what, <laughs> I, and again, I'm selective of where I use this, but I came up with what I call the dickhead test just a series of questions that you'll ask somebody. And the reality is often when you're asking them stuff and it's still, the questions are not clever. They're like, has he got a partner? What's the name of his partner? Got children, how old are they? What's the name? Where did he last go on holiday? How's, uh, how's his parents' health? What's his favorite TV program? What book is he reading at the minute? All stuff like that, nothing clever about the dickhead test. But the reality is what you can often find is those that you label a dickhead, you know nothing about them. Yeah. Relatively little on it. Whereas when you've got more of a judgment, you understand that like sometimes it's contextual. You know what I mean? That the example I use with coaches is sometimes I bet you'd describe me as a dickhead when I'm driving a car and if I'm in a rush, I might cut you up. But you if you understood that I, like my dad's poorly and I've got to get home to help him, you might have greater empathy with me. You might is yeah. a polymedic in that. So the context of it uh, can often uh, be different. And I think sometimes it's just about not yeah. being invested in the results is, is a big part of what yeah. I do. So I, I'll, I always say this to coaches, I'm not, if you win or lose, that's down to you. You're like, and that's not me absorbing responsibility. My job is to make sure you do the best you can. And if you do the best you can, that increases your odds of doing it. But my job is to be in the shadows to help coaches because often people ex expect them to be infallible and they need to have somebody that they can come and speak to where they can be fallible and say, I don't know, how do you think this happens? And that's what I love doing. And again, the origin story is that's because that's, I saw the loneliness of those positions through my dad growing up. And I think it's a big driver for me to want to be a support for those coaches. Yeah, just one final thing for me, Damien, before we come into your mile 15. I know you've done a bit of work with Scotland, and I'm not going to ask you, though, who you've spoken to in the conversations, because obviously they, they are only between you and the person. But 
it's been interesting watching Gregor Townsend as a coach develop. Like, you know, he, he kind of, he's not the same as Guardiola in, in terms of kind of a journey, but he's coming after, you know, playing for Scotland, playing in 99, successful Five Nations team, et cetera, et cetera. But what was interesting for me when they beat France the other week, he said in his post-match interview, I'm not bothered about 99, it's about the players who are behind me celebrating now. And, and that was quite a key thing for me, that he's had the history of the national team, but he's just focused on the players who are who in that moment and celebrating but also the effect he's had on the likes of Stuart Hogg and people who are, are quick to share the trophy with the new players and things like that. And I think that just for me, having listened to you for the last hour and 15 minutes, kind of shows the leader that Gregor is and possibly why he's been selected to go on the Lions tour. Yeah, he's a great bloke, Gregor. So, um, yeah, I'll say that first and foremost, that uh, as a person, he's a great person. You know, like, I think he's got decency, kindness, his humility. He's got all the characteristics that we're describing here. So um, I couldn't speak highly enough of him uh, as a fella. As a coach, I know that the players um, like uh, his innovation. I think he's very clear-minded. Clear I think he does something that really, like, again, without betraying confidences. Yeah, I think yeah. When he coaches, is really interesting. That The metaphor I would use is he's like an architect and when he comes in, he's got a blueprint of what he wants. And I think what he's brilliant at doing is when the players execute the blueprint, he replaces his, his picture with real-life imagery. So it's almost like he's, he, he, the, he, the, he's, his whole coaching style is about catching players doing it right, not so much doing it wrong. It's about catching them doing it right and reinforcing the good stuff so you get more of it. I think that's a real skill of his. I think the one moment that I think that really, and again, I'm conscious that I don't want to give away too many yeah, sort, yeah. Of, uh, um, sort of conf uh, confidences here. The one moment that I always think that I've seen him in that surpassed any other was, do you remember that game at Twickenham when um, we were getting beat at half-time massively and came back to draw it? Yeah. That was the moment that, and I've said this to Gregor, so I'm not saying anything out of turn to him. That was a moment that when uh, I thought, uh, I don't think I've ever respected anybody more than I did him in that moment. Because when we walked into the tunnel at half time, it was bleak. Like I, I remember just thinking, this, this isn't good. Do you know what I mean? Like, because we just hadn't turned up and showed who we were. We'd almost been like a, uh, a, a shadow, a pale imitation of what of what we're capable of. And I remember um, when he walked in, um, Matt Taylor, uh, the uh, the defence coach, he's a great bloke, really a bully, and, and and I could see he was having to work hard to try and find some positives. And I could see that it was just it was just difficult. And Gregor went off into a room to reflect. And when he came out and spoke to the players before we went back out, it was sort of like the greatest display of emotional maturity I think I've seen a coach do because it would have been so easy to have come in and just screamed and shouted and expressed frustration at what they did. And he didn't. He just came in, was really calm, really composed, went back to the game plan, the blueprint, reminded them of it. And I remember saying to him afterwards, fair play to you, because it's easy to be detached from that. But when you're in that cauldron, of emotions, to have that emotional control was to me when I thought you're a proper elite level coach. Like you, you can go as far as you want. Um, 
in uh, in coaching, which is why I'm glad that see he's got that Lions gig this what? week. Uh, I'm glad that he's he's sort of been rewarded for it. Yeah, and one thing before we move on, Damien, that you just mentioned there, you talked about like I couldn't have respected Gregor more. I mean, you know, throughout the whole of the chat, you res- you have clearly a high level respect for everybody you've you've worked with, the coaches, the teams, the organisation. So when you do receive you know, some of the testimonials that I read on your website over the weekend and at the start of this week from Sir Alex, from Sir Ian McGeekin, from Tracy Neville. Do you kind of, you know, look back at the journey that you've just described to us from when you were in that boxing gym with your dad and think, wow, you know, this is what shaped me and hearing people and clearly, obviously, one of your idols, Sir Alex, talk about you like that must be a very proud thing for you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm not a great one at reflecting back, if I'm honest. I, I like... I, I think I can take the, like when I mention like growing up in the boxing gym. I think that that uh, that's relevant to my story. But I don't. I'm not great at reflecting back. I've, I've sort of once it's done, move on from it quite quickly. I think. I think. I think some of that is a is a defense mechanism from my point of view. That I think um, once you've done it, I think there's nothing sadder than hearing people talk about. Oh, I could have done this, or I could have done that, or I was, and it's like I don't know if it's the same when you get people on the 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 older we get, the better we become, don't we? As players in our memory, oh, I was a great player, I could have done this and that, and I, I always think there's something quite uh, quite sad about that, and I think it's the same in terms of like I've written books that like my very first book I ever did was Liquid Thinking, and I wrote that like 16 years ago and, and when people say oh I've read your book and there's a bit of me thinks oh like is it any good because there's certain things in it that I probably wouldn't have written it today in the way that I did it then but I think I've, I've improved as a writer without being arrogant about that I think just because I've, I've invested more time in trying to learn and reflect on it that means that my writing style is different now than what it was then but that was an accurate reflection of me at that stage of my life but I'm not a big one for for going back, and that I say this to um, I say this to my son quite a lot. That when like when I get older, I'll do that. I say no, no, you don't. I say I know lots of stupid old people, and I know and I know lots of really smart young people. Experience doesn't make you wiser. Experience and reflection brings wisdom. Do you know what I mean? But you've got to do the hard yards of stopping and being honest with yourself and reflecting on yourself. I think that's where real wisdom comes from once I've sort of reflected on it and got a lesson try and move on from it rather than rather than sort of hang around looking back at those old relationships but I just don't but I hope to leave them with like I was talking to Tracy Neville yesterday and um, I've always tried to be a decent person so if they ever need to come back I can help them in the moment they're in then rather than go back as a reflection of oh do you remember when we did this that doesn't Much, uh, much Hi guys, I'm Sam James. I'm a Loose Heads ambassador, and you're listening to the Loose Heads podcast. Make your mental health a priority. In in rugby clubs across the globe, we will now be selecting our Lions 15 or 23 or 38 or however many go. Um, but the biggest selection is that is that Mars have come to Earth. They quite like uh, the rolling the rolling hills and the forests and the streams, and they're fed up with the aridity on Mars. So they've challenged us to a game of rugby. Um, 
we've lost the toss. We've played rock, paper, scissors. We've lost three times. So it's going to be played on Mars. The shuttle takes a month to get there and a month to get back. We don't know what, whether there's a lively bar or two or a nightclub on Mars. So changing the rules slightly, not that there are any rules with the bonkers question. Um, but for Damien Hughes, I believe this should be a cultural architect 15. That <laughs> right. just, have, just have to go to Mars and win a game to decide the small matter of the future of civilization. So Damien Hughes, the floor is yours. Wow, this is a brilliant one. Um, right, so it's going to be an eclectic mix, which I know we spoke before and said eclectic is good. Uh, I want to throw Kevin Sinfield in, first of all. So um, the reason for that, that I've known Kevin since, uh, since he was a young lad and uh, the success you see at Leeds Rhinos and things like that, that he's a humble lad, but the importance of him in that was, uh, was seminal. And he is a fantastic bloke. I remember uh, our mums worked together, and I'm a bit older than Kevin, but we got, uh, they both got sacked, they lost, they lost a job. And first time I met Kevin, we were on a picket line, protesting our mum's jobs back. So <laughs> he's a bloke that, like, that just stands up and does the right thing. And as you see with the Rob Burrow stuff, he was doing the right thing a long time before this. He's just, and he does the right thing time after time after time. So I throw Kevin in there. I'll throw, another, I'll throw another rugby league character in, um, Jamie Peacock. Oh, yeah. That, that, again, like, great, great bloke in, in, in every respect. I'll tell you a funny story about him that still tickles me. Was uh, when, um, back in OA, I was on the England coaching staff and we went out to the World Cup in Australia. And uh, Tony Smith, the head coach, said to me, he said, oh, will you, will you do one of the tackle bags? <laughs> looking at it and he goes just hold it he said let the lads run out here you'll be alright and they threw me in and they put me on uh, with Peacock running at me <laughs> and I don't think I've ever been as frightened and now I've been in boxing rings I've been out of my comfort zone a long time but I don't think I've ever been as frightened as all the tackle bag and seeing Jamie Peacock get a 20 yard run up <laughs> and he was a look in his eye as he was running at me that I thought oh, I'm in trouble there <laughs> and, and he uh, and he ran and, and, and I still feel immensely grateful for him that I think he realised that he was going to it'd be like a roadrunner running over Wiley Coyote or something like that and he just diverted at the very last fraction of a second and saved embarrassing me uh, and, and, and I'll tell you one other funny story about uh, Jamie um, that there was another time where I had a disagreement with one of the players on uh, for a team and he'd done something and I challenged his behaviour and this guy didn't take my challenge particularly well. And uh, I genuinely thought I was going to get a good hiding off this barrier. It was just me and him and we we're in the centre circle um, and we were, and it, he was getting very heated and I was sort of trying to explain why I challenged him. I'm sort of a bit diplomatic here. But I genuinely thought at one stage, I want to get a hide in. And I knew I'd be in trouble if this guy started throwing punches at me. So in my head, I was sort of planning how I was going to evade it. And I was thinking, I'll just hold him round the middle and let him hit my back and then hope eventually it'll get separated. And fortunately, this didn't happen. This guy sort of stormed off in a row. And then literally about five seconds later, Peacock emerged from the shadows 
to come and see what had been going on. And he sort of he uh, he got the lowdown of it, and the, and he said to me, "Oh, well done for standing up for yourself," you know. And he said, uh, "You know, admire what you've done there." I said, "Oh, thanks." I said, "Can I just ask?" I said, "I thought it was going to turn physical." He went, "Yeah, so did I." And I said, "Would you have jumped in?" <laughs> like, and he went, he said, "I'd have let him get a few good lo- uh, licks of you before I'd ever turn in. <laughs> which I think. To my mind, though, I, I didn't appreciate it, but I could appreciate his sense of justice. Do you know what I mean? So he'd definitely get a mention in there. Uh, in terms of... Um, I'll mention a couple of lads with Scotland that um, I'd, I'd throw in there. Um, Stuart McAnally. I'd definitely put him there. He, I think he's one of the bravest people that I've ever had the good fortune of working with. I think he's a decent... Uh, an incredibly decent, humble man. But I think uh, that game I was telling you about when uh, Scotland came back from uh, getting hammered at half-time, that game, um, that turnaround was precipitated by McAnally's try. He scored and, before half-time, didn't he? Just before half-time. And I still remember being on the touchline thinking it was possibly one of the bravest things I'd ever seen of him running towards a packed, whatever end it is, in Twickenham. <laughs> these England players did, and he was exhausted, and we were demoralised and depleted, and it was the courage that he had just to keep going and going and going that distinguishes him. And just and beyond that, he's just an incredibly decent, humble lad. And I think if you're going on a month-long trip to Mars, he's one. I thought like him. He's a, he's a qualified pilot as well, so he'd be good to throw in the mix there. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd throw in another bloke that I've got an immense amount of um, affection for, uh, Johnny Gray. Uh, again, just a, a bloke that could be um, a social media star, but just a, it, it, it's abhorrent to him. He's just a guy that loves the grind. He loves, the, loves his craft of just being better tomorrow than he was today and got no interest in sort of affectations or bullshit or bluster, just a proper load that you'd say I'd have him in any trench that I was going to be alongside. So I'd throw him, him definitely in there. Um, yeah, a lot of time for them. Um, in terms of non-rugby, I'd throw in um, Roy Keane. Roy Keane would have to be in any, in any team I was ever picking. Roy Keane gets a definite slot. Not because... We've had this debate a bit, but what position would you play him? Would he would he be in the back row or would he be in the centre? Centre, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I love Keane. Uh, not just as a footballer, but I, I, I just think as a bloke, I just think the standards that he set as a cultural architect, yeah. I think he was essential. Like there's that brilliant story where uh, Rio Ferdinand told us this on the podcast that he said he went in and he knew about Keane because of his... Um, he said the very first day he went into United, he said he thought, I'll play it safe. He got the ball and he passed it sideways and Keane just roasted him. And he went, I'm not a West Ham or Leeds anymore. He said, and he said, you don't take the safe option. We play to win here. Pass it forward. Take a risk. Gamble. Standards matter to him. Yeah. You know, there's a great story I was told years ago on this. And um, Kieran Richardson one day was driving into training in, uh, and he had his convertible Bentley and the roof was down and he had music blaring out. 
And as he pulled into the car park, he went over to him and just said, just turn your car around and fuck off. <laughs> and his point was, he said, you've not turned up to try and improve today. You've been more concerned with driving to training and being seen and, and being, a, being visible rather than just coming in to work in the shadows and do the hard work. I don't know if it's a true story, but I just love the idea that, yeah. that that's an affront to a bloke that's <laughs> that's coming in to do that. So I, I throw Keane in, uh, that's five. Cantona comes in as well, I think, from my generation, a bloke that the ripple effect, if you judge a cultural architect by the ripple effects, you know, the fact that people 20 years later were still citing his influence of professionalism and just this idea of, are you big enough for me, rather than, uh, am I big enough for the club, is uh, just brilliant. I just think he, he he captures the essence of it. And then I'll go into the realms of boxing, if I can, so I'll throw in football. Boxing, uh, marvellous Marvin Agler. So he passed away um, last month, but I was fortunate enough to write a book on Hagler, and he's just one of my all-time heroes. I just love his belligerence. I love... He was a guy that came from the most bleak of circumstances, but just like, I I was telling my son about him because when he died last month and I love the fact that he used to talk about, he'd bring his own judges to any fight and he'd say, this is K, this is O. And it was always just a bloke that, um, there's a great story about him that again, people might like was, if you've never seen the fight where he boxes Tommy Hearns, where, he boxed for the middleweight title of the world. And it's like two blokes that you could have staged it in a phone box because he just sort of get in the box and just start whacking each other and see who bit. And we interviewed a guy called Richard Steele, who was the referee for the fight. And in the second round, Hagler cuts his head and he's got a bad cut and it's bad gash. And uh, he's, he's corner trying to stem it. And in the third round, the, the referee, this Richard Steele, pauses the fight to get the to get the doctor to come and inspect the court. And Hagler said to him, uh, he said, what are you doing? And he went, we're just checking you've got a cut on your head. And he said, well, what's that got to do with you? And he said, well, I need to see the blood's not getting in your eyes. And he came out with the immortal line. He said, I'm not fucking missing him, am I? <laughs> and I love the idea that you're in the middle of a war and you've still got the strength of mind to be able to deliver a line like that while then turning around and demolishing Tommy Hearn. So, uh, so marvellous Marvin Agler goes in there. And then another boxer that, I've, that I, uh, I love is uh, Rocky Marciano. Yeah. One stories of Marciano that, again, he was a bloke with no natural talent or not a lot of natural talent, but just bags of character, bags of heart, bags of um, just credibility. So they definitely um, go in there. I think we've got a pack there. If Cantona's yeah. playing, would Cantona go eight? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Eric can go wherever he wants. You yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go into the world of coaches now. So, uh, in, in different categories, different coaches that I throw in, um, I would absolutely every day of the week have a uh, customato. So Customato, for anyone that doesn't know, it was uh, he, he, he's most famous for being Mike Tyson's trainer. Um, but he, 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 he was the guy that spotted Tyson at 13 in a penitentiary and sort of uh, adopted him as his son and sort of took him right the way through to become the youngest ever world heavyweight champion. But he was brilliant. I love 
so many, he, he was like a psychologist as opposed to just a trainer. But he had this great line that I, I think about so often with young people, where he said, there are no stupid people, just dis, just disinterested ones. So it's all, he saw it as his job of how do I spark your interest? So he was incredible. There's another guy, another uh, boxing trainer that I, I was fortunate enough to get to know a guy called Emmanuel Stewart. So he ran the, the Cronk Boxing Gym in Detroit. And uh, we're talking about mental health here um, in kind on this. A great story about him was um, I did another book on uh, one of his famous alumni called Thomas Hearns. And when I went out there to, uh, to Detroit, it was scary. Like uh, Detroit's not a great um, wealthy city. And when I was going out there, the, uh, it was at the start of the 08 recession. So it was on the tail end of that. And um, this whole city's built on the car industry. The car industry has gone into decline. Detroit's been dragged down with it. And I was going to the poorest part of uh, this bankrupt city. So the gangs, the drugs, the violence was all really, really very evident. And it was scary. But I was dead keen to get in there. So I went into the, the Cronk gym and I'm the only white guy around there. So I'm standing out and I'm feeling nervous anyway. And Manny Stewart, him and my dad were mates, so he knew I was coming. So I get there and he goes, David, and he said, it's great to see you. He said, how do you feel arriving here in the Cronk gym? So I'm thinking, I better be polite. So I'm like, Manny, it's great to meet you. Thanks for having me and looking forward to it. And he listens to me and he goes, he said, that's kind. He said, how do you really feel? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had verbal diarrhea. You know, when your mouth's going and your brain's going, just shut up, but your mouth keeps going. And this is happening to me. And I'm then stood in front of this boat going, to be honest, man, I know you're busy. I don't want to be in your way. I feel conscious of your time. I feel a bit out of my depth. And just start babbling. And he lets me finish that. And then he goes, thanks for being honest. He said, you'll be all right. I want to look after you. And when I got to know him a little bit better, I said to him, you know, the first morning we met, man, yeah. He said, why did you ask me the second question? He said, I always ask the second question. He said, every boy that comes in that gym gets a second question. So I went, that's intriguing. Tell me more. And his answer was this, he said, he said, every child that comes in feels the same way you do. They're nervous, they're frightened, they're scared, they're intimidated, they look like an outsider, they want to belong, they don't feel it. He said, and I work on the basis that I'm the best coach in the world, but I can't coach you when those emotions are clouding your judgment. And he summed up emotional intelligence. He summed up your podcast in three words. He said, contain, then explain. He said, contain, and what he meant by that was, convince you I care about you, I'm interested in you. I want to know your story and then I can explain how we're going to work together or how we're going to get better. And it was such a powerful message for me that I remember thinking that's why you've been successful, that in this gym of alpha males, kindness counts. is almost like the, the calling card of getting in there. So I definitely put uh, Manny Stewart in there alongside Custom Marto because I just think those two alone are incredible. Which takes us to 10, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now um, I'll go personal then. So the last lot then, I'll throw in people that I've been fortunate enough to meet over the years. So David Roberts gets in there, the late great David Roberts. Uh, we started this podcast with him. So just a bloke that adds value in any situation. David goes in there. Um, I'm going to put my dog Teddy in. So, uh <laughs> I've, I'd, if, if you'd have come to me five years ago and said you'd be in love with a dog, I'd have laughed at you that I've always been sort of slightly scared of them. And um, my two kids have been asking since 
since they were little, whether we could get a dog, and I've always sort of kicked it in the long grass, so maybe one day. And uh, three years ago, um, I, and I was allergic to dog hair, so that was my excuse. And then we found out you can get dogs without a hypoallergenic, so that don't shed. So that removed that excuse. And then uh, we tested, uh, we did this thing called borrow my dog, where we borrowed a dog that was to make sure that I wasn't allergic. And there was one night I'd borrowed this dog and I was taking him for a walk and the sun was setting. And it was like a summer's evening about nine o'clock near us. I remember just this feeling of calm that came over me. And I thought, I wouldn't have this feeling and I wouldn't have this moment if, I had, if a dog hadn't brought me here. Because there'd have been no reason to be out in the park at nine o'clock at night. And that was the moment I think I need to get a dog. So we got Teddy two years ago. And uh, I love him to bits. It, like me and him just go for long walks and an evening together. And I've seen all four seasons. You know, you think you appreciate the summer, the spring, winter and autumn. And um, I just love him. So Teddy comes in there because I'm not going anywhere without Teddy these days. <laughs> I'm conscious that makes me sound a weirdo, but I'm definitely in there. Uh, and then um, my children. So um, I've got two children, George and Rose. They have to come. That takes up to 13. Uh, my wife would kill me if I didn't mention her, so she can come in uh, on it as well. And then the last one is a bit of a personal one. I mentioned to you about my dad. Um, he's not very well these days, so um, but I'd have to put my dad in because everything that I do today stems from those experiences that we started this conversation with about growing up in the boxing gym. And, you know, the best thing that we all need as kids is just to have somebody that's setting a good example for us. And I think... Uh, I'd, for that reason alone, um, I'd, uh, I'd include my dad in it as well. Brilliant. And like any great team, it doesn't matter whether you play, just get them on the field. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. We'd, uh, yeah, we'd have a laugh on the journey there. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, it'd be good. So, yeah, the, the, they're mine. So it's a bit of an eclectic mix, but uh, hopefully it gives you a flavour as uh, the way my mind works on this. Brilliant. And a non-human. That's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant brilliant team Davey and, and uh, yeah that would be some team to face the Martians on Mars so we'll be looking forward uh, to that one but listen Damien it's been an absolute pleasure taking up your time and uh, listening to sort of your stories and, and your journey and Thank you. over the last sort of hour and a half or so we really do appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and I'm sure anybody who's been listening to this whether you're into rugby whether you're into sport whatever walk of life you can take definitely some of the lessons which Damien has, uh, has told us all this afternoon so thank you so much for your time Damien really appreciate it no thank you for having me I think I, I remember what I said to you at the start I think what you guys are doing of you normalizing conversations that that uh, are life-saving and life-enhancing and I think that takes courage to do what you're doing because they're not part it's not part of the mainstream so I, I really admire like courage is a virtue that I, I really admire and think needs rewarding. So thank you for having me on. But thank you for the brilliant work that you guys are doing. You're listening to the Loose Heads Podcast. Join the movement. Let's get people talking about mental health. And together we will tackle, tackle the stigma. stigma. This is the Loose Heads Podcast.